You are listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Welcome back. Welcome to a fresh week. I'm so glad that you're here, and I'm so excited to share this episode with you. I fast-tracked it because it was just last week I was in New York City uh, visiting a friend, watching her complete her first marathon. If you follow me on Instagram, you already know all this, Um, but for those of you just listening in, I'm giving you the full backstory, and I was able to catch an amazing Broadway show and interview the playwright behind it. And this is someone who has been working as a creative for many, many years. And so to be able to sit down in Studio 54 with him immediately after the show was such a treat. I felt so, so lucky and blessed um, that he spent his time with me and, and really just shared his life journey in this world and how he became creative in the first place, what he does to nurture that skill, that art uh, within him. And it's something like he says, that we all have. Um, it's like a muscle that you work out. So, you know, what he shares is is incredibly interesting, just learning the backstory of his life. Um, but also you get a lot of great takeaways for not only yourself, but your children, how you can encourage uh, creativity in your own life, how you can encourage your children to be creative, because it's really... It's a life-changing skill, and it's something that can really heal the world in a lot of ways. So I'm so, so, so excited to share this conversation with you. And if you don't already know, his new Broadway show, The Sound Inside, is at Studio 54 in New York City. Get your tickets now before they're impossible to get. You will not regret it. Again, this is not a show for children. <laughs> this is just for you. Um, but it's it's dark, and it's haunting, and it's so, so, so funny. So if you are headed to New York for work or play, escape for an hour and a half, head on down to Studio 54 and catch this incredible, incredible show starring Mary Louise Parker and Will Hockman. Enjoy my conversation with playwright Adam Rapp. This episode is sponsored by Motherhood Unstressed CBD. You can pick up your organic, third-party tested CBD in stores around the country or at motherhoodunstressed.com. Thank you so much for having me here. I just saw your play. It was amazing. Um, And right off, the first question that comes to mind is, where did you first get the idea for the play? What what was the initial spark? Well, I was working at, um, I worked at Yale University. I was a a professor in the graduate playwriting program. And um, I was traveling a lot between New Haven and New York City, like three times a week. So I was on the Metro North train a lot. And there's a and the, there's a there's a novella within the play that Christopher describes, and there's an encounter between two boys that becomes sort of a centerpiece of his novella. One is a, a Yale freshman, and the other is a a white homeboy from the projects, and they have an encounter at the train station. And I actually witnessed that in real life, mm. and so that was the first. And and there was I couldn't figure out what their relationship was, or if someone was going to get conned, or if they were going to fall in love, or if there was going to be violence or if they were and they I wound up getting on their train car with them and just kind of spying on them and they became what appeared to be friends and they were from different classes and one was you know obviously a Yale educated freshman and the other one was this like tough kind of feral kid from the projects and I just I just was fascinated by that so I started to I followed them out of the train station and then after a block they continued walking together and I just kind of let it go and I that haunted me. And so there was that story. And then I was also at the same time um, reading a lot of um, Russian literature and I was reading Crime and Punishment again. And I was thinking about this professor, 
and this student who are the two characters in the play. And those two stories of the professor and the student and, and her illness and then what she asks of him and his novella and the subject that I saw at the train station kind of um, conflated into an idea and I couldn't shake it. And that's usually when I have to write a play is when I can't stop thinking about something. It's like I get um, a virus and I have to write it. I love that. And do you feel like it's something that's really coming from within? Or do you feel like you're tapping into a different vibration and the ideas are just pouring through you like a vessel? Uh, you know, I, I, sometimes it feels um, sometimes it feels like the latter of it, but I don't know what that is exactly. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a huge mystic in any way. I, I do think that, you know, I've had a lot of crazy experiences in my life and I have a lot of um, all kinds of experiences that kind of sit deep in me and I, I'm able to draw from. But I do think sometimes when I'm in the free fall of the writing, I don't know um, I don't know where it comes from sometimes because some of these ideas or some of these, the way a, a moment might turn or the way a scene might pivot surprises me. And, and um, my, t my plays tend to be, you know, violent and dark and uh, difficult. And I don't consider myself to be a very violent person. Um, I, th I, have viol I have a lot of violent, disturbing dreams, and I think my unconscious is kind of loaded. Uh, but in my waking life, I've, I don't. I think I'm pretty well adjusted. Um, so I don't know. I know it's a combination of my unconscious and my conscious. That's the way I, I look at it, as opposed to like some other force, you know, um, delivering something to me. I love that. I mean, writers are known for being really great observers. Like you said, you were taking a train and you just observed this interaction. 99% of people would have seen it and then went on their way and been obsessed with their own lives. What about your life or who you are made you that way, in your opinion? You know, ever since I was a kid, I was like a, I was always the kid in the room. I probably, I was always the smallest kid, weirdly. I mean, I'm kind of tall and big now, but I, I was always, I was the last kid to go through puberty. I was the last kid to um, physically mature. And I think in North America, I, li I literally <laughs> was. And so I always felt like a little bit of an outsider and I was an athlete too. So I was a weird, I was a good athlete. I, yeah. um, but I was a, I was like the smallest athlete. So I was always an outsider even within that. So I always felt like when I was in a room, I felt like um, I could tell who wanted what from whom. You know, I could tell who was keeping secrets. I didn't know what those secrets were or what they wanted, but I could feel that kind of thing. And I think it was just because I was always watchful. It was just an innate thing that I had. I think it's, you know, different now because uh, developing that, I guess, eye or that, um, I don't know what the word is. It's a, that watchfulness or that, like, I think empathy is part of it, but I think mm -hmm. it's actually, um, it's also like, being um, interested in other things and other people, otherness, you know, is is fascinating to me. But I think these days it's harder because we have our our phones, you know, and we have our computers and we have these um, screens that um, sort of open the realm of narcissism in such a profound way that we stop looking at other things. So I'm 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 fighting that. I fight that daily because I I do find other things more fascinating than myself. So. Um, and it's, it's weird because, you know, if you have a publisher or, or you have a play right now, a play and I'm being encouraged to like 
take photographs of myself with the cast and mm -hmm. you know and disseminate stuff on social media and it feels very strange to me because I came up in the you know I, I moved to New York in 1991 before email even happened and I was I worked in book publishing and I was I'm, I've always been obsessed with books and I have a big book collection and you know that's like the antithesis of of you know the iPhone um, right um, I even find myself reading things that I can't carry around in my backpack on my phone now, you know. So it's a tricky thing with these days is, the, is this sort of notion of what it is to observe. It's different. Everything's observed through a screen. I mean, it's kind of, it's a hard mountain to climb, especially, you know, when you want your show to, you know, get to as many people as possible. And, you know, that's kind of why I'm here and why we're connected. And you've been so kind to, to have this interview with me. Um, but what do you think, I mean... It is the way that the world is now, and we don't. I don't think people necessarily just observe themselves. I think it's another form of observation, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily in the present moment. So, what do you do? What would be your advice for anyone listening to this to kind of get out of that? How do they touch back into that 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 nature that we've always had, but we're losing because of technology? I think it's interesting. I think um, narrative curiosity is going to come back to sort of the live event or the uh, artifact of the book. Um, I think it'll become um, almost, it will feel like something special. Um, that we used to take it for granted, you know, and mm -hmm. now we have these, these devices that are so bewitching, you know, and they're so seductive. And I watch narrative television on my computer, you know, because it's convenient. I watch um, sometimes I watch a video on my phone, you know, but I do think I'm hoping that sort of things like live theater and performance art and museums and, uh, books that are bound, uh, and, you know, paper over boards, cloth, that, that will, that, that kind of culture will, um, become very, very interesting again in the way that, you know, things are cyclical and, mm -hmm. uh, I have a feeling that there's going to be some sort of youth movement that, turn you know starts throwing their phones away well and the like, scrunchie is back so there's that the what is it the scrunchie what is that what's the scrunchie <laughs> the big hair tie that oh was yeah, big yeah in yeah. the 80s i didn't know that was back oh it is yeah. sure. <laughs> um but to get back to the play it was just i just watched it for anyone listening and it was so incredible and and so dark and you, you kind of wonder where it's going and then all of a sudden there's this line and it just makes the entire audience crack up like not just a ha ha but like really laugh mm. where does that come from have you always written that way or is this just just an aspect of this new play on broadway i think it's i've always tried i've always just had this balance of absurdity or or a sense of humor and the darkest craziest things um, I think you have to. I think if I think if I didn't have that balance, I think it would just be no one wants to go watch somebody's nervous breakdown. You know, I think there has to be something buoyant or something um, eccentric or interesting or alive or funny in order to allow the deeper levels to be hit. You know, I, I remember talking to a an older playwright when I was first starting out and he watched something of mine. He was like, oh, you, you're already doing it. And I said, what am I already doing? It was my first play called Ghost in the Cottonwoods, which was done in 1996 at the National Playwrights Conference. And he said, you're, you, 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 you pull him in by making him laugh, and then you punch him in the stomach. Yeah. And I didn't know I was doing that. I think it's just my natural, um, my natural instinct as a writer to sort of 
entertain myself as I'm going, so um, um, so I can continue to go to the darker place. I think if things don't have balance, if they're not balanced, if humor's not balanced with, um, or if sadness isn't balanced with humor or bathos and pathos and all that, I think it you just can't quite get to open up the nervous system of an audience member as much. So I'm always trying to think in extremes in that way. Like I think my work has to, in order for my work to work, to succeed, it has to be as brutal as it is funny mm -hmm. and as heartbreaking as it is um, callous. You know, I think that's, for me, for my work, that's where I find that it functions at its highest level. Um, so I'm always striving for that. Do you have to force yourself to add in these funny lines, or is it more of a natural process? It comes pretty naturally. I mean, I also can go into really ridiculous, silly places, and sometimes I have to weed it out, you know. It's too much. Um, yeah, too much counterbalance. Yeah, and I think I've, I've written some plays that are more absurd and more fun and, you know, kind of, I guess, night, comic, comic nightmares, you know, <laughs> more than this. This I, I'm surprised a lot of the laughter we're getting in the play. I mean, it's it's really? different on Broadway. Yeah, last summer when we did it, it was in a 200-seat house, and the laughter was more um, it was more like anxiety laughter. It was like pockets of laughter. Mm. But because I think there's a thousand, you know, seats and we're, you know, close to being full every night, there's it's a different kind. It's like a boulevard laughter, so the laughs are more social, and mm -hmm. there's a more of a mob mentality. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. I've never had... A house this big see one of my plays I think my biggest house before was like 850 and it was a odd dark comedy um, but it wasn't like this um, and also the actors are playing it so um, I guess uh, consistently like Mary Louise has a section where she's describing going home with a man and having sex with him I love this part and she gets the same exact um, kinds of laughs in that section She's like crafted it with the direct the director and Erlois and I I guess crafted it in a way that her performance sort of gets the same kinds of laughs every single night. I've never seen anything like that where something is so consistent. And I don't know what that is. I thought maybe that's just because it is a bigger audience and that's the tendency. I think it's that but, part. I mean, it's just yeah. everyone I feel like has been there at some point in their lives where they've right. just had awful sex and you're just you're you're vibing with her on such a level. It's fabulous. Oh, that's fun. That's <laughs> But what was the moment like when you found out that it was coming to Broadway? It was the, it's the first time that one of your plays has been on Broadway. When what was that? Yeah, that it was. Moment? You know, I was a little bit in disbelief. I've had a couple of I've had some opportunities that I squandered earlier in my career, and I thought, oh, it'll happen again. I had a play called Red Light Winter that transferred from Steppenwolf's Garage to New York, and they wanted to bring it to Broadway, but I had done it in this small little space, and I didn't. I thought it would get swallowed up in a big house. So I, I went with a, a smaller commercial production at the Barrow Street Theater in front of 200 people because it was a, I, I created it in a small venue and I directed it. So I was like very, very protective of that. Mm -hmm. And I could have done it at a, uh, on Broadway and I was like, no, it'll, ha and I thought in my mind, oh, that'll, it'll happen someday. And it just didn't happen. So I, I felt like I squandered a couple of opportunities. So I actually thought that this was, it just wouldn't happen. I mean, last summer when we did the play, David and I, the director, we were just trying to figure out how it worked, you know, and how it, um, how, you, you know, you put all this time, we get about four weeks of rehearsal before tech, and then you get three days of tech, and then you have your first preview, and it's just like, you're just throwing spaghetti against the wall, you know, and we had no ambitions, I mean, Mary Louise is a, is a big name, but a lot of big ma names do small plays, and they don't advance, mm -hmm. you know, so... 
we were sh- I was pretty shocked. I mean, I think the reception critically really helped um, last summer, and all the producers came circling. And um, it, initially, it was going to be with another producer, and then he he sort of uh, killed the project. And then Jeffrey Richards, who's producing it now, picked it up immediately. And so it it actually it had like a promise and that fell apart, and then another it was resurrected. You know, uh, after a brief um, collapse. So. Mm. I'm pretty shocked still. I mean, I still can't. I mean, we opened a couple weeks ago, and I'm still a little bit like I can't believe Is this really it's happening? happening. Yeah, I mean, it should have, it should have happened a while ago, and I just was stupid. I should have just said yes a while ago. Because I, I, I love it. You know, it's fun. Yeah, but I think that's true for a lot of people. You know, you, this is your heart and soul that you're putting out there. It's scary. It's scared to. It's scary to be on this level. You know, with the greats, but you're here and you're doing it. Yeah, it's it's pretty fun. And yeah. people, what's nice is a lot of people. I'm hearing from a lot of people who are seeing it, uh, from, you know, all friends from the past and people who travel into the city and it's, it's a different level of, um, reconnection with people, uh, than any time I've had successes before where you, you get that, but it's just, it's a much smaller scale. Mm-hmm. This is a totally different, cause it's a, you know, people are flying in to see it and coming across the country to see it. And it's really kind of amazing. You know? Yeah. So Mary Louise Parker is amazing. I've loved her work for years, Fried Green Tomatoes and Weeds and all of that. How is it to see such a performer say your lines, so many lines that she she covers in this hour and a half performance? um, She's remarkable in that it it feels like even the first time she read it um, in front of me with another actor, she, it just felt like she had thought the words, you know, it felt as if she had authored it. There was something about her connection to the way I write and the sort of sense of humor in it and the bitterness in it and the kind of um, lack of sentimentality. Uh, she's kind of a brutalist actor. Like, she is, she's not afraid to be ugly. She's not afraid to be difficult. Um, so it, it was kind of incredible. I've always admired her work. I We, we didn't know each other. I worked with... Um, her ex on a play. Uh, I worked with um, he, at the Vineyard that I directed, and I got to know him really well. But they were they were they were already broken up, and so we our paths never crossed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw her in Proof like 20 years ago, and I thought she was incredible. And of course, I've seen her in film, and I saw her in uh, Angels in America and HBO, and I've always admired her, and I um, and I've always been like kind of afraid of her because I think she's kind of there's something. There's something a little bit, uh, and I mean this in the best way, there's something a little witchy about her <laughs> and how she connects to um, my stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I've, I've been in this business for a while and um, I've worked with a lot of terrific actors and I've worked with them, some people have done 10 or 12 of my plays and, you know, Michael Shannon and Paul Sparks and Michael Chernus and, you know, on and on and on, these incredible actors. And... Um, I don't know that anyone has um, so naturally uh, played the music as well as she does. That's saying a lot. She's she's spectacular. She's also an incredible writer herself. So she has a writer's mind, Mm. and um, and she has a real understanding of dramaturgical shifts. And she, you know, she had a lot of input about when we would make cuts, or if she thought it was too much, or this was too little, or she wanted something more here, and sometimes 
you know, it was a conversation that led to another idea, or sometimes I would fight her on it, or sometimes she would fight me on it and she would win. But we would, <laughs> you know, it was a, it wasn't, a, it wasn't by any means a bad experience. It was mm-hmm. just like she's meticulous. She's, mm-hmm. she has an allergy to not telling the truth. I'm uh, an allergy to um, lying or 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 perform like um, to performing the play. She has to actually inhabit the play hmm. um, and uh, inhabit the thoughts and every thought and every line. So. It was an amazing collaboration, and David was very. David, the director, was incredibly uh, deft at creating a space for us to be transparent, completely transparent. And it was only four of us. It was David, the director, myself, Mary Louise, and Will, and uh, it was a very intimate um, exchange the whole time. Yeah, because I think if it wasn't, the play wouldn't have worked. Like I, it, yeah. it would have come across instantly. Yeah. Um, and what's also really interesting is how bare the set was. I mean, you're in at this huge theater at Studio 54. It's a giant stage, and yet you have these small pieces. But to me, it's like once it got going, I was so into the dialogue, into the exchange, even when it was just her up on stage. How did you come to that idea to do it that way? Well, that's a testament to David, the director, and his designers. Um, I just think one of our challenges was in this vast space to make it feel intimate and to have the audience's attention iris down to this little two-hander. Um, you know, you have 53rd Street on one side of the theater and 54th on the other, and you have traffic and you have this old, you know, this old cathedral of a theater that has beautiful vaulted ceilings and, you know, it, how we were afraid at first that it would feel too cavernous, but actually I think the light, the lighting designer and David and the set designer kind of really made a a, a bold choice to not make it bigger, but to actually pull the audience in more. Like nobody knows this, but the actors are just like just a hair. Like they're you can you can hardly you would hardly know it, but yeah. it's just so every word could be heard. David wanted the experience to feel like someone was watching a live novel unfold, and so he wanted them to hear the words um, incredibly clearly. So there's a lot of thought that went into how to make it feel like an intimate experience. And that was not no accident. And mm-hmm. But there was a lot of worry about the vast space. But actually, I think it feels more existential because there, the, the void is bigger. And so when things are emerging from upstage to downstage and the light's hitting their faces in a certain way, it feels like there's this kind of greater um, universe than what we experienced last summer, which was you know a smaller footprint. Absolutely. I was just, I mean, I got chills when you were saying that because it's so true. And that's kind of one of the major themes of the play is the void and loneliness and all of these small moments. You've been called like the master of small moments. Um, And talk to us a little bit about that. Um, Why do you think these small moments are so crucial to life, to the reality of living? Well, you know, I think the mundane things we go through every day, going to the bathroom, brushing our teeth, you know, doing the dishes, are like you knit those things together and you have a life, you know, and it's, I think we, we sort of unconsciously just kind of barrel through our days and we think that the things that are important are the things that are important are, you know, eating and childcare and working out and, um, celebrating and, you know, those are all huge events in our days, but actually the things that we repeat over and over and over and over again are the things that kind of keep us alive. So I, I believe that to dramatize those moments, the small moments, um, are just as important as the big moments. And I have a lot of big moments in a lot of plays where people are doing, you know, 
awful things or falling in love or, or you know, br there's brutality or they're, 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 someone's beating somebody up or there's a sexual moment that goes wrong or... But I do think um, as I've gotten uh, more experience, I think I tend to lean more toward the smaller, more intimate, um, unapocalyptic moments now um, to, to find out a way to dramatize those. You know, there's an amazing... Uh, moment in Martin McDonough's first play, The Beauty Queen of Lenane, where this uh, boy comes over to give this girl a love letter, and the mother accepts the love letter, and then the girl isn't there, and the boy leaves, and he's going like to some other part of the country in Ireland, and then the mother reads the love letter, and then you watch her open the stove and throw the love letter in the stove, and it like it has this blood, like the audience had this blood curdling, almost like a horror movie mm -hmm. response. And I was so taken with how he was able to narratively frame that moment. It was an amazing lesson in how like those small moments um, of cruelty or of, you know, just a letter, the ob this little object can, you know, the audience can invest in that. And um, so a hand going to a face, you know, um, these, it doesn't have to be, uh, uh, an enormously sexual moment. It can be just a moment of intimacy. Those those can carry just as much weight as the big apocalyptic moments. So it's like figuring out how to balance those things and make them legible for an audience. Yeah, and you do that so well. Is that something that you have really worked on as you know your writing has progressed and you've just grown as an artist? Yeah, and I think I've I've directed ninety percent of my plays, and, wow. and I I love directing. And I think it's just for me, it's just an extension of the authorship. This was the first time in a long time I hadn't, but I feel like as a director, I was able to figure out by continuing to work on my own plays and other people's plays, just how to try to craft those moments. It's what's really strange is um, David, who David Cromer, who directed this, is I think one of the great master directors in, in the world, and I mean that, and he really is. I mean, he's incredible. He, um, I think we're similar in our approach to moment to moment directing and so that's one of the reasons why I was I insisted on him um, if he was available and interested I was like I wasn't I wasn't allowed to do it so hmm. he was um, my first choice and um, you know he it's so funny because I don't you know I, I don't know that you would people would look at my work as a director and his work as a director and and like just immediately think that there's we're similar but I actually think we we make similar choices um, he just does a lot of different kinds of plays in my plays. Right, right. I think, too, like, if you're watching it and you're like, oh, I so wouldn't do it that way. I mean, again, yeah. it would come across because there would be this tension. But there is there is this, like, harmonious flow to the whole play. Oh, like, good. it does. Good. Like, I felt, I had a thought when I was watching it. I was like, this is kind of like a rock concert that you go to. And you don't really know where it's going to go. You've had these highs and lows. You're just along for this ride. I mean, I absolutely had that feeling oh good yeah i think the the big edict i try to keep myself in tune with is just um like if i know where the thing is going to go then i think the audience will too and i think she actually talks about the yeah. play like stay ahead of your reader um if your protagonist is leading you then you'll stay ahead of your reader and i think that's true of any any kind of narrative form you know but i i try to I try to not know too much as I'm as I'm working, um, and I I, I want to be surprised as I'm 
I want my characters to lead me. So that's kind of what I was, I think, sitting in with this play a lot, because they were actually talking about that. So I wanted to make sure that I had to follow through on executing that as the playwright right. <laughs> of the play where they're talking about that. Otherwise, I'm a hypocrite, you know. Oh, but that so. sounds like it would be so hard. It's like, how do you have the idea of how this play is going to go? Or maybe you don't. I mean, how, from start to finish, do you really know what's going to happen? What's I didn't your... with this. I really didn't. I knew I knew the, what the ask was going to be. I knew she was going to ask him to do what she asks him to do, but I didn't know what the consequences were, if it was going to be successful, literally in, in, until the moment I was writing it. And then, I, and then it just... And it, that's never changed. Like, I've never rewritten any part of the play in, in terms of the events or the actions of the play. They're, they've all been the same event stream as when I first wrote it. And I think that's just a lucky, you know. Uh, sometimes I do manipulate them later or I'll, I'll make a different choice later. But this time it just felt really whole after it came out. Um, and I had to do some work on just too much embroidery or too much of this and cut this. And I had to trim and expand a few things and... But I got lucky, I think, I think successfully um, had a good first draft. Absolutely. So when you're working on something versus when you're not working, you're just taking time off, which do you prefer? Obsession I mean, I think it's really important uh, to, to have time to, like, gaze at stuff and to daydream and to read books and to watch movies and to, like... Um, be inspired by other things. I think if I can, I get into trouble when I get on the hamster wheel, you know, where I'm like in a rut. I'm, I work, a, I have a day job too. I, I'm, I work on a television show. I don't, I'm not on a television. I, I'm, a, in a, I'm in a writer's room. I'm an executive producer of a television show that is being created right now. So I go from 10 to four every day there. And it's like this think tank that, you know, breaks story together. And then right now I don't, I don't have to be at the theater anymore because we opened. So I have my evenings back, but when I was doing both, I was, I was like getting a little worn out with, you know, with work. And I think it's really important to take a few hours a day to just like not think and to just like let, let my unconscious kind of speak a little bit to myself because otherwise I get caught up in just, um, too much of the mundane. just the, the work, you know, and then I, you know, I try to get upstate and walk, I have a, a, this big lake by my house and try to just walk by the lake and and read something, get kind of lost in something, you know, um, get re-inspired by other things. And um, I think that's really important. I think for anybody in the arts or anybody probably in life, I think having, I think daydreaming is underrated. I love that, especially for all the mothers listening who are worried that their children don't have enough activities back to back. You know, you're not failing. It's okay. Yeah, I think I actually, my my mother, uh, she was a nurse, and she she was off, and she raised us on, on her own. She was a single mom. She raised three kids on her own. Um, so we were left to not to fend for ourselves, but we were we always had babysitters, or we had her sister. Had, she had nine sisters, so she had one of my aunts were always watching us or something like that. But I did have a lot of time to like just um, daydream, <laughs> which is crazy. I I didn't think I was gonna ever be in the arts. I was you know, an athlete my whole life, and, um, but I think something about, um, and she didn't want us to watch too much television, mm-hmm. uh, which, which I think was healthy, yeah. healthy, um, so I think, you know, imagination, my imagination got really fertile, I didn't know where to put it when I was a kid, um, I used to draw 
Um, and she encouraged me to draw, and then I kind of stopped drawing for a while, and I started drawing again. But I think um, if I wouldn't have started writing, I would have probably become a visual artist in some way. I can still like look at something and draw it, and I don't practice it. It's just a, a weird. It's not that good, but I can like render something as it looks. I bet know? it's really good. But I but I think that became a became what my writing is. You know, it became I that be, that took over, and I think. Um, she allowed that space when I was a kid. Absolutely. I mean, it seems like that's really a strong part of your brain is watching something, observing something, and then being able to translate it. And then with the writing, there's all these dimensions to it. I and mean, it's really beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. So for anyone listening who wants to have more creativity, maybe not be on Broadway writing plays, but just, you know, encourage creativity in their own lives, in their children's lives, what's your best advice for them? Um... I'm, I think just sitting and being okay, this is going to sound crazy, but sitting and being okay with silence. And um, I'm not, I don't know if that's a kind of meditation or, but just um, being in a room in silence with uh, something to do, you know, uh, whether it's a pad of paper or a book or, um, I don't know, for kids, I don't know what that would be. Um, I don't have kids, so I feel like I'm, just speaking about my own experience, but but I do think that um, turning turning all the all the uh, surfaces that all the digital surfaces off, and just um, having people like connect to their thoughts, I think that's the thing that I think is really helpful to develop an imagination, is to sort of like listen to one's own inner life and to sort of somehow pay attention to that. Um, whether it's through writing or through music or through um, diary, you know, writing a diary or a journal or drawing. Um, I think, like, taking some time to do that every day is really important. I take it for granted because I just do it anyway, but I think if I hadn't developed that muscle, I would have mm-hmm. never, um, I would have never come as as far into this career as I have. And I part of that is just, like, just never stopped, you know, and then been at it for a while, but I do think that there's a will in that, and I think that that can be developed. And I think the way we think critically and the way we listen to ourselves can be um, achieved very simply by just like shutting everything off and just um, listening to what's going on in your head. And being okay with it. Yeah, and being okay with it. Yeah. yeah. The world can race around, and just just to be okay with silence and solitude for for a few hours and the sound inside (laughs) which is the title of the play thank you so much adam this is such a pleasure um thank you for sharing your story your light your your vast wealth of knowledge with the audience it's my pleasure you have been listening to the motherhood unstressed podcast and i'm your host liz carlisle if you found any kind of value out of this conversation today please share us on your instagram stories tag us at motherhood unstressed and hit those five stars. It literally takes five seconds to do that. And you will feel so good for uh, giving back to the show if we have given anything to you. Have a great week. Love you guys.